<laughs> oh god well anyway pa you came here i did yeah. i did i'm trying to get pa uh pa o'connor he's from cork and i'm trying to get him on to this podcast for a long time but you're a busy man you're a doctor and you're a farmer and i remember when i met you first it was at the cannonball and you and usheen were there and you were one of the you were the younger crowd say and you were driving this cool old Mustang. And I was there, there's some guys with class and style. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what they do for a living. Because they're very young. I was there, daddy's money. There we go, <laughs> daddy's money. You were probably looking at me, look at this fucking age of probably daddy's money as well. <laughs> but um, as I got to know him, you're a really nice guy. Really nice guy. Really timid, really kind. And when I was chatting to him, I was there, would you come onto the podcast? I'd, I'd, I'd love for you to come onto the podcast. And you're like, ah... No one wants to hear my story. I'm born. I'm born. And I'm just going to give you a, a little rundown of Pat's stuff. He's like an Irish David Goggins, right? <laughs> Only you're a white and you're a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> Rode the Atlantic in 2018, cycled the length of Ireland in 24 hours without stopping. I don't even want to ask you to stay your ass after that. Uh, bronze in World Kickboxing Championships in 2013 and... That's just crazy stuff. And what age are you? I'm 33 now. 33? 33. Yeah. You're, you're real young. I, I can say stop. that now that I'm 42. I can say that. <laughs> but I like to go back to the start because I yeah. like to follow people's journeys because everyone has a different journey to get to the destination they're going to. Yeah. And you're probably the first person in the academic world that I've had on. And I just find it really interesting. Like, wh where did you grow up? Yeah, so I'm a country boy, as you mentioned. So grew up on a farm, humble background. So in Castleton Road, just a small little village um, in North Corks, kind of between Madam Mitchell and Fermoy. Mm. And uh, I suppose farming was the only kind of life that I, I knew growing up. And um, my life kind of like moved on from there since and never really saw myself ever pursuing an, uh, an academic career, to be honest when with When you were young? When I was young. And yeah. had you a big family? Big family, yeah. So I'm one of seven, second eldest of, of seven in the family. So I have four sisters and two brothers. So it's and quite I, a big family. That's quite a big family, yeah. It's yeah. nowadays. Yeah, exactly. Nowadays anyway, yeah. And when you were younger, it was, did you love farming? I did. I did. Like, to me, farming never felt like a work. Like it's sort of a lifestyle and it still is to me as well. You know, I think it's just, you're out in the open, it's the fresh air, it's the animals, it's all the simplistic parts of life. And I think it's the diversity of it. You know, one minute you're calving a cow, the next minute you're mending fixes or fences, the next minute you're putting the gearbox into a mower. And like, these are even like jobs that I'm thinking of having done recently. So I just love that sort of not knowing what you're doing and not knowing what time you're finishing up and, and it's just so rewarding. You know, it's it's one of those things that you can throw the phone aside and mm. you're kind of out there in the elements. And, and when you were younger in school, did yeah. you look forward to getting home to farming as a release from school? Oh, I was a bit of a pop. I wasn't even really turning up to school. Really? I was, I was calculating the days that I could get away with Hate without it. turning up to school. And I remember I used to always turn up to my parents and I'd be like, oh, look, you know, I don't have my homework done. But look, if I stay at home, I'll do the bit of farming. I know we're behind in fences or whatever. And look, when we get the farming sorted, it's then like I'll go away and I'll do a bit of study and sure like they'd agree to it then. Was that in secondary school? That was, well, yeah, it was secondary school really. It was kind of on towards the later and stages in secondary how school. How did you find secondary school? Um, 
I enjoyed it. And, but when I say I enjoyed it, I enjoyed it because of the crack in the messing with the boys. You know, I was a little bit of a messer. It was like anything from taking handles off doors to any bit of trouble that was ever in school. I always seemed to be kind of stuck in the middle of it. And, you know, and that was probably the bit that I, I liked. Did I like the academic side and the studying and things? No, I didn't actually. Were you good at? I wasn't good at it. And I think this is the one thing I think people look at the perception and they're like, oh, when they see that you're a doctor, they're like, oh, you've obviously always worked and, you know, been very good in school and very academic and things and that wasn't the case for me like at 16 I wanted to leave school and it was like it was 100% given just, just had enough of it and you want to leave I had enough of it as in like it was kind of always my plan it was like oh should look legally I can leave school at 16 and I'll I'll go and I, I had two interests farming and cars so in my head I was going to be like tuning cars by the day and farming by night or doing vice versa and that was my my idea in my head and Probably not the most realistic goals of like, I was like picturing sort of the Fast and the Furious here, rigging cars up to Nas and doing all this kind of, yeah, exactly. <laughs> not sure there would have been much of a market, but it was kind of like my parents that kind of pushed me. It was like, no, 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 look, you have to go to college. And that was sort of their thinking. And it's not that I'm annoyed with them or anything, but it was like, they had that sort of thinking or mindset that was like, go to college, get any job you want, but get a degree under you. And then when you have your degree, if you decide you don't want it, that's fine. You can put it aside and you can do farming or do whatever else you want. Or strict. They weren't necessarily strict, I suppose. Both of them would have both been very humble and both of them would have been farmers as well. But I think it was kind of from their side, I suppose, they didn't want me kind of limiting my opportunities. I think they kind of knew that if I went, left school at that age, went off farming, that I'd never go back. So even if I regretted my decision later, that I wouldn't go back. And the other thing as well, they looked at it is my parents wouldn't have been sexist. It wasn't a sort of a thing that the oldest boy gets the farm and to hell with everyone else. They would have been very much like, you're all equal. We have seven kids. Like there was two farms, but they didn't know what way they were going to divide it out. And my parents would have been quite young. I mean, even even down to my mum, she's just like 61 years of age now, which is not old, like, oh. you know, so that was kind of their, their part um, and their kind of thinking of it. So Did your mom and dad go to college? They didn't. Like dad would have done some sort of accounting degrees and things um, on the side, um, but it would have been kind of from an interest part and he'd have kind of done a few welding courses and things like that. But they would have all been just kind of things that he'd have had a bit of interest in. And it was just kind of like, oh, for the laugh, I'll go away and I'll do this and I'll do this particular course. But no, both of them would have been farming. Like they'd have done the green search as part of mm. the farming side, but it was kind of less strict, I believe, back that time as to now. Getting a degree, just any degree, just to please your parents and going to do medicine is a huge jump. How how did that yeah. happen? So this is where I'm kind of going to fill in the gaps a little bit, I suppose. I was the lost kid, you know, I was just, I really didn't know what I was going to do. And I was kind of there and I was kind of looking at college and I was like, oh, you know, what would I do if I wanted to go to college? And I didn't really even kind of look through CEO things. And it's like this at the time I wasn't studying. I was going in and out to school when I did turn up to school with hardly anything in my school bag and, you know, no kind of real focus at all. And it wasn't until... My dad became sick. And so at 49 years of age, just kind of setting the scene here, he was fitter than I am now, mm. never smoked, never drank. And he incidentally, I was out milking the cows with him and he suddenly got a pain in his side and went into hospital. Long story short, he was diagnosed with a renal stone, but they, they performed a chest x-ray and on the chest x-ray, they found a shadow. So like we thought, oh, maybe he had a bit of an injury after falling from a machine and away. But long story short, he got diagnosed with lung cancer and it was one of those things. It was our exposure to the medical scene at that particular time. And 
uh, I'm going to have to be kind of careful with what way I kind of phrase this, but there were some particular parts of his care that we didn't like as a family mm. and it kind of really upset us. And it was at one of those times I'm like, how can someone treat someone like that in the most vulnerable time in their life? And that was it. That was the switch that clicked for me that I'm like, I want to make a change to this. I want to be the caring doctor that's there for the patient. And that's what I want to do. At what age? Um, so this was about 17, 18. No, yeah. it was it was 18 um, is is what age it was because it was, I was actually in Leaving Cert at that time. So... We were coming into the Leaving Cert exams. I actually failed my Leaving Cert. Um, my, like the boys used to joke about the points that they got in the Leaving Cert. They were like, oh, we went out and we drank more points than on the night than we got in the day. <laughs> you know what? The only thing is I didn't go drinking that day. So that was probably the only thing. It was yeah. the reasons why. But anyway, so I went away and I repeated my Leaving Cert. And he was still sick during this time. So I went away and I repeated my Leaving Cert. And there was this HPAT exam. It's an exam that you have with your Leaving Cert to get the points to get into into college or whatever else anyway. So for medicine. So study my butt off to get into medicine anyway. And I came up with a really good leaving cert. It was like I got five ninety points. And this is out of the old time when like so six hundred would have been points a, in the country. Exactly. Right? So the year before I'd have got medicine in any college in Ireland, but my particular year because it was the first year of the HPAD and I messed up the HPAD, I didn't get medicine. So long story short. Went in, started in pharmacy, so did a year of pharmacy, and it was during my year of pharmacy that dad passed away. Mm, sorry to hear that. So at this time, my parents would have made a lot of financial investments at home. Financially, things were very tough, and I accepted, look, my chance of medicine is gone out the window, and I'm certainly not going to put that on my mom or on my younger siblings when finances were kind of tight already to even give it another go, plus also picking up the slack of doing the farming and things at this time. So I kind of like put the dream aside. Was it just you doing the farming this time? And my two younger brothers now, my, my two younger brothers now, they're like... They must have been kids. They were kids. They were kids, you know, at the time. But we hadn't really a choice. I mean, like, you're faced at a fact at the time of, like, we were down a lot of money and it was all in, it was all money that was taken from the bank. So we had a choice of we either sold land or we got out of business or we put our heads down and we worked our butt off and we got through it. And... That was heavy on kids. It was heavy on kids, but... It's it's one of those things. We all had our choice and it was our choice that we wanted to do it. You know, this is what we grew up with. It was what we kind of built up on that. And that's something that we didn't want to, to let go. Yeah. And I think it's one of those things of when you go through something like that, it can make you more determined. You mm. know, when you become comfortable in life, that's when you become complacent and you don't yeah. push yourself as hard. Whereas when you have to work hard for something, it gives you that extra determination. It gives you that extra drive. Mm. So kind of from this, my my older sister, Elaine, and my mom both kind of sat down with me one night and they were like, do you still want to go for medicine? And this kind of came completely out of the blue. So I said, look, I'd love to, but I knew that we'd have to pay six or seven grand or whatever to, to do college. And that was even if I got the place or whatever else. So they were like, don't worry about the money. We believe in you 110%. If you want to, we'll back you. So they were like, if you want to go for it, you go for it. And that was it. So I resat the HPAD exam while doing my pharmacy and got into medicine. And since then, I've never looked back. Wow. Yeah, so... That's some catalyst. It, it, it's mad. And, and it's funny because it's one of those things that it's how something small or not something necessarily something small, how something can happen in your life and it completely changes the trajectory of, of your life and where your life goes, you know? But and from that moment, did you just become hyper achieving or do you just like to put yourself 
in a lot of pressure or do you just love loads and loads of goals and then meeting them? Loads of goals and meeting them. Yeah. And, and it's something I like, I try and find out reasons why I do something. If I do something or if I have a feeling that I want to do something, I always try and kind of have that little bit of an insight as to reasons why I want to do it. I think my particular thing is I know how precious life is. And I think it's from my job, from obviously seeing dad passing away so young, etc. One of the things that I always listen to my parents saying is that the 25th wedding anniversary, they were going to travel the world together. They were like, look, you know, we can't travel when we have so many young kids, we can't afford it and whatever else. And they were like, the 25th wedding anniversary was the time that they were going to travel the world. And it was, it was that, at that time that... I was kind of like, oh, okay, look, I understand they're trying to build an empire, you know, they're growing and growing and growing, but they had this idealistic picture that at the 25th wedding anniversary that the kids were going to be old enough to kind of mind themselves, mm. that they financially be a little bit more stable, both will have good health and they'll travel. But the reality was at the 25th wedding anniversary, like dad was too sick to get out of bed and it was something they didn't celebrate. And you're like, this is an opportunity that they've missed out on in life. So now I'm kind of like, if you ever have an opportunity, you have to just jump at it with two feet because none of us are like in 12 months time, we may, we may not be around, mm. you know, there could be a car accident, there could be whatever else. And I think it's always one of those things. And I'm like, this is going to be the most depressing podcast. Here. We'll have to cheer <laughs> us up in a minute, but it's like, we'll sing a song. <laughs> I, I, I mean this in a sort of a happy way, but like, if you look at it and if you were told that your, your time has come, or if you're on your deathbed tomorrow morning, you look back and then you say, well, God, do you know what? I'm happy I live my life as opposed to not giving time to family, as opposed to not mm. doing all these other things because of a selfish reason, reason or whatever else. And that's kind of the bit the, or reasons why I'm kind of thinking. It's like that, that famous quote. I don't know who said it. I think it was French Pascal. A man has only two lives and his second one begins when he realizes he only has one. Yeah. Yeah. I like that phrase. I've heard that before. It's very good. It's really good. It is. Yeah. It is. Yeah. And when you went to say when you're in college studying medicine, yeah. is it, as intense as it seems? It's, it is intense. I suppose, look, for, for anyone going through with the leaving cert, it's one of those times that I think is probably the hardest part because at that time, your maturity levels are probably still not the same. Um, whereas when you kind of move into college, I think you have a little bit more freedom and it's probably not as hard for that particular point. It's learning, you know, it's just, it's putting in the information into your head and giving it back. And that's probably what the biggest thing is. Look, there's an, an element of strategy. There's all these other little bits with it. But I think if you kind of keep ticking along at it, I still feel getting into college is probably the hardest bit of it. And I think when you're kind of in the door, it's it's easier to get out the other side than kind of getting in the door. And that would be my own personal opinion. Others may disagree with me, but, you know, I think it's very achievable to kind of get out the other side once you've got in the door in the first place. Mm. It's like, even though I think you have to, you have to be mature as a young man to sacrifice the good times that yeah. everyone has to study and do all those things that a lot of people at that age don't have the foresight yeah. to do that. But you had that drive back then to do it. Yeah. And was it go ever since? Go, 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 go. Yeah, like for the majority of it, I think so. Yeah, it's just it's just trying to like live every moment of life to the full. And how know? do you fit in? Oh, God, that's a lot of studying. I think I'll row the Atlantic. <laughs> <laughs> like, how, how, does, how does that happen? So yeah, that was one of those really random things. 
So we were studying for an exam. It's called pathology. So it's it's not the most exciting exam to study for. But like life couldn't feel any worse when you were studying for it. And it was a sunny day outside, blue sky. And we're in there halfway to our exams. And one of my buddies rang me up. You know, Sean is uh, Sean Underwood now. He's a good friend of mine, but he's a bit nuts. And uh, and I mean this in the best way. But he rang me up and he's like, oh, Pat, would you be up for, for doing some rowing? And I'd be like, oh, yeah, like, but I've never rowed before. And he was like, oh, like, I'm no, don't worry. This is not for a good bit yet. But like, we're thinking of rowing the Atlantic. And I was like, oh, but like, I can't swim. And he's like, ah, look, don't worry about that. Like we, we've like two years or three years or whatever else like that to kind of prepare for it. So you'll be absolutely fine. So then I was like, ah, yeah, look, go on. Well, I, I'll do it. You know, I'd always be up for a challenge. So I said, I'd do it. Now it's at this point that my ignorance kind of showed true that I like didn't realize how big the Atlantic was. So I was like, yeah, sure. Like it's probably take like a long weekend or it'll probably take, <laughs> but yeah. Then I pulled out a map and I looked at the size of the Atlantic, but like, it's one of those things when I say I'll do something, I can't back out. So it was just like my ignorance kind of like. So what, how it. much training is involved in that? What, how do you. What's that process? Yeah. And it's funny because the whole thing kind of happened so kind of gradual and we suddenly kind of found ourselves on the start line leaving and going, oh my God, we're here. This is happening. Um, but it was a long, hard slog to get there. And who's with you? So there was four of us in total, four of us on the boat. So Sean would have been in med school with me. And then um, there was Owner Farrell then who was a good mate of ours and uh, he would have gone to secondary school with Sean. And uh, we, for some bizarre reason, we really struggled to find a fourth person to... I wonder why. Yeah, I, I don't know either <laughs> why, but anyway. So we struggled really hard to kind of find a fourth person, but uh, through kind of a mutual friend of of Owens, we managed to get another one of the lads called Tommy, Tommy Brown. So he's um, from Dublin and he kind of linked in with us as well. So we were the four people who hopped in the boat and, and rode across. So we went from Lagomera in the Canary Islands to Antigua in the Caribbean. So it's kind of the theoretical shortest crossing of the Atlantic. It's about 5,000 kilometers. Is it scary? It was. Um, there, were, there were different parts in it. Like the first bit that you were dealing with was the seasickness. Now, I remember talking to a gentleman before we left and he's like, there are two parts of sickness or seasickness. He's like, the first part, you think you're going to die. And the second part is like, you wish you're going to die. And like, yeah, we experienced <laughs> both. Horrific. Yeah. And, and I think what the, what the biggest problem is, is like for anyone else who's experienced seasickness, if you're on a boat and you're coming off the boat in 24 hours. How big hours, is the boat? So the boat was about 24, 27 feet long-ish. Yeah. So we have three rowing positions in it, two little cabins on the either end. So the way that you'd row it is two people are rowing the boat at all times. So you're two people rowing for two hours, then you're off for two hours. And the two hours that you're off is the time that you eat, you sleep, you cleanse yourself whatever way you want, use a bucket as your toilet. That's the, most, that's the then, best way ever I've heard. Said yeah. So it's kind of constant yourself. shift, constant shift work. So it was two teams of two the whole way through. So the boat was being rolled for the full 24 hours. So the theoretical, it took us 33 days to so just shy of 33 days 33 to do it. 33 days. Yeah. So 32 days, 22 hours to be precise. And the longest length of time that you would have that you wouldn't be rowing for, that you would be off rowing for and that is two hours. So like you're, and that, that, that means like the longest length of time that you would have had to sleep would be an hour and 45 minutes or whatever, depending on how fast you'd fall asleep. And that must be bad for your psychological health. health. Yeah. It's funny. And to, to see the parts with this is you end up having hallucination and things as well. But so like for one of the lads, as he was there rowing away, he, he asked um, Sean, he was like, oh, can I have the Pesci flu that's in the fridge? Now we certainly <laughs> did not have a fridge in the boat and we definitely didn't have Pesci flus either, but that's what he saw. And like, 
Did you see any? I didn't see anything, but yet still, it would kind of mess up your thinking all the time. It was like one of the times that I was inside in like this little cabin part and my eyes were closed and I was picturing that the boat was made of glass and it was like an aquarium outside there and it was just behind the net. And like my brain was telling me, no, no, that's not there. And I know it's not there. And I'm awake at this point, but I still had to lift the net to make sure that the boat wasn't made of glass. So you're just cognitively, you're just not sharp, you know, and it's this, that's it's the sleep, sleep deprivation. Depri- that's exactly it. It's the sleep deprivation. You know, you're not clicking into your normal you sleep cycles. It, it was amazing. I suppose what was the most spectacular part of it all is probably the night sky. Like I love the night sky and I love the stars and all as it is. But when you're out there, you're in the middle of the Atlantic ocean, like no there's no pollution. one near you, zero light pollution. And you're looking up at the night sky to see all the stars. And it just highlights how insignificant you are and how tiny you are in this massive place and it's amazing how alone you can feel when you're out there it's just and I'm probably not selling it but it's just it's a spectacular feeling it really is like the whole time I was racing to get to the finish line you know my my determination my drive I was looking to make sure what distance we were covering and then when we kind of got closer to the end, the lads were like "You, you don't look like you're happy that you're almost finishing and the reality was is I wasn't I wasn't happy that I was almost finishing. And the, the reasons being is like, you can't have a purer life than what you had out there. Mm. Like when we look at modern day society, it's all about the Instagram. It's about our self-image. It's about mm. all of these things. Whereas out there, we didn't have a mirror, so we didn't know what we looked like. You weren't shaving. You weren't combing your hair. Um, and you didn't care. And you didn't care. You know, even clothes wise, we weren't really even wearing clothes. But when we were out there, you didn't worry about your food because your food was pre-packed dried food inside in the cabin. So you didn't worry about that. You didn't worry about contact with people. You weren't worrying about bills. You weren't worrying about any of these things, but you just had that sort of self-awareness, that time for doing your meditation. And it was like, you got up, you rode, you slept, you rode, you slept. And how close you can come to people like at a time like that, the stories that you share and things like that, it's just can't be replaced. It's it's amazing when you strip back all the minutiae of life that you feel more alive. So true. So it, true. It, yeah. it, it's and it's always in moments like that. Yeah. It's when you're at your most basic, you know, the basics of life. It is, yeah. What was the yeah. first thing you done when you got to the end? Yeah. So my family came over and that was a surprise because I didn't think they were coming over. So to kind of row up to the start line or to the finish line and think that there's going to be no one there to greet you and be accepting that. Terrified. But it You're was gonna like, do what? <laughs> but this is a funny thing. They weren't actually. Um, my family were very much pushing me to go for it. But then the funny thing is then they were like, right, if you die at sea, I'm taking your car. My brother was taking my DJ decks. Like they had all my possessions divided around, around them. So I was like, is this because they want me to have the life experiences or because they want my life possessions? And I'm still a little bit iffy about that. But no, I think they kind of were like, look, if you have if you have an itch, you have to scratch it. They're like, if you have any bit of a, a want to do this, you have to go. I think if I was doing it by myself, I think they'd have been very worried. Whereas when they knew I was doing it with the three lads, they knew that they'd have been there to look out for me. They trusted them and vice versa for obviously for all their families. And it made it that little bit easier. You know, they knew that we were going to be kind of smart about how we did it and that we mm. valued our lives and that we wanted to come back alive, but also didn't want us looking back in 10 years time and be like, oh, we had that opportunity, but we didn't take it. I was going to say, well, if you needed a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, damn, don't ask that. There's three of them, four of them. And... Uh, when did you fit in all the kickboxing? Yeah. When did you start doing that? So the kickboxing thing was in college. I think for some bizarre reason, I was always kind of interested in 
in like self-defense and kind of keeping fish and all this kind of crack. And um, for some reason, I just kind of clicked in with martial arts. Now, my the sport that I would probably have been better with was probably boxing because I used to actually train through boxing clubs and things as well. But I didn't like the bit about boxing was that it's so up close hmm. and don't like getting the kind of hits to the head or whatever else like that. So kickboxing, having the long arms, the long legs, it kind of be, seemed to be Protect the one that kind of suited me. Exactly. And as well, it's just an all round great sport for fitness. Um, but yeah, started into the club in college and fell in love with it and like took up some Taekwondo and joined the boxing club as well in college to kind of push on it. And I set myself a goal that I wanted to be part of the Irish team and compete in the worlds um, before I left college. And like training twice a day, push myself really hard. And again, it's one of those points, sacrifice nights out. <laughs> You're just not a normal person, are you? I know. Yeah. <laughs> it's like you can't half do anything. It's like, yeah. I'm going to do this, but I'm not going to do anything. Take a shot in the best. <laughs> I know, but that's that's nearly sounds like a bad thing as opposed to a good not thing. when you're just, winning all the time, it's yeah, not. but I, I loved it. It was just, it was that freedom, I suppose. Like even when you were competing, you divided it in between three things. Like it wasn't down to being the fittest person. It wasn't down to be the most talented person. And it was sort of like, I used to nearly divide it into like a third of each thing. So it was about a third being smart, a third being fit and a third having skill. And you can have two of those three and it's not enough. So I kind of like that sort of tactics part of it as well. And always had a very tight guard to kind of protect myself. And the funny thing is like when people hear that you, you do martial arts or whatever, they're like, oh God, you know, you'd have got a lot of hard hits and things. I've got more injured cycling a bike than I've ever <laughs> had inside in any competition, you know, but just, you just meet some amazing people through it. It's a great sport and, and I really like it. And it's nice having that something that God forbid, if you ever needed it, that you could defend yourself. Now saying that, if anyone ever ever hit me in a night out, I'd just run. I wouldn't even hey, bother doing I'm anything else. So. I'm bringing you with me and I'm going to give cheek and shit to everyone. <laughs> and I go, you have a problem? <laughs> Talk to him. What was the, when you were in, when you were training to be a doctor Yeah. and you're finished college, do you have to do training or do you have to do a placement or do you go on the ward or was there ever a time when you were doing it and you said, oh, this is too hard. I don't think I can do this. You'd come across very tough times, I suppose. You always kind of know where you're kind of going and, and the end goal. And I suppose with it, when you kind of start on the wards part, it's a little bit tough. And then you kind of discover there's a lot more paperwork than actually seeing patients. And that can be, can be a little bit frustrating at times. How do you decide what kind of doctor you're going to be? And when do you have to do that? You kind of fall into it by accident. You know, some people can know from very early to, for me, throughout med school, it was all accident and emergency. I was the adrenaline junkie. I was the person who wanted to be doing all the sort of trauma related stuff. But then when I actually started working in the hospital, I was like, it's not actually what I thought it was. And I was like, oh, this is actually not for me. And then kind of talking to a few doctors and things that I was working with, they were like, oh, you'd be best suited for the medical side. They're like, you know, you're good with how you interact with patients and things. And they were like, that's where you go. And I love fixing things. Like I'm, I'm a proper surgeon at heart. I love mm. like taking apart things, fixing things and things like that. So I think that's what kind of brought me in towards cardiology. It seems to encompass all my bits of the continuation of care of having a medical job, meaning you're chatting to patients. You're, it's a medical part of where like you're managing patients on a ward etc. But then I also have the intervention side where you're doing stenting or opening up the arteries. And Are they more emergency? They're the more the emergency. So like if someone has a heart attack, um, it's what we call a STEMI. So a STEMI is where someone blocks off a blood vessel, 
locking or supplying their heart and it's a it's a medical emergency and we have to get them into a hospital as quick as we can to open up that artery and this is where we tread in a little wire and a balloon and a stent to open up that artery and get the blood supply back to the heart and I kind of like that bit because it challenges you under a time pressure you have to think fast in your feet um, and in, in addition to that you're doing a, a procedural um, part as well so I think it's just kind of it encompasses everything and I think it suits my personality and how how hard is it make that transition from books standing beside someone while they're doing procedures to now it's your turn? Yeah. To, that, that, oh, this is a human. This is a, a person and their life is in my hands. How does the... So in a stepwise part, you, you're always reached with challenges and you always feel pushed out of your depth a little bit, which is good because I suppose that's kind of where you kind of grow to. And obviously just to make sure that the patient is safe all the time. I don't know if you're ever 100% comfortable at 100% of the time. I think you'll always reach a point of where you're challenged. And I think this is where you have to kind of turn to colleagues. But I think the whole thing kind of happens so gradual that you're not even aware of the individual steps. It's a bit like how you'd hop into a car now and drive it and you think very little of it. Whereas you think at the start when you were using the clutch, changing gear, all of these bits that kind of slow in it. Whereas now mm. you kind of just drive and you don't even think about it. You know, so I think but I often wonder how people like you handle the pressure of, you know, when you meet someone and you're having an interaction with them and I'm simplifying it, of course, mm. but they're saying, save my life. And that is all on you. Or at least you feel like it's all on you. Yeah. Like, how do you, what's that like? Like, is there weight on it? There certainly is. I think it, it's often obviously when you come across someone who's very unwell and even if you have someone who's not conscious and, and they're very unwell and then you obviously look at their family and things around it and you can kind of try and appreciate what the family and things are going through it and you do know that there's more pressure on you. However, we, it's very rare that we'll work as an individual. There's a massive team behind us from cat lab staff to nurses to other doctors to even down to the portraying staff, you know, the healthcare assistants. There's so many in the team and everyone has such a massive important role there that it's all kind of di diluted out among everyone there. We all have our own little role. We kind of know what to do. And this is one of those things of where you kind of have to push yourself to. You like, if you're not kind of keeping up to date with with research, if you're not kind of putting in the time and doing your work and things, someone will suffer at some point. So it's kind of there is that little bit of pressure on you to kind of perform at all times as well. People that have a perception, I would have had it. You know, you hear someone's a heart surgeon or a doctor, and you think, oh, they have made handy life. And then I got to know you, and we'd be messaging each other and you're doing night shifts and shifts and just working so hard you're working all the time can you explain a typical week that you're of your job or what your day entails yeah so you do a lot of night shift and we we do so we like it, it depends on what service and hospital and things that you're working but um Essentially, we, we'd work a 24-hour call, which can be about a one in six or a one in, in um, yeah, it's around a one in six or a one in seven that we do a 24-hour call. Now, depending on the hospital that you're working, your 24-hour call can actually become like a 34, 36-hour call um, instead before you leave the hospital. And then outside of that, you're kind of working like an eight to six day. But again, you often kind of work before and after that longer than you should, but that's sort of like your timetable bit. Mm. And there, there would be a little bit of a variation in, in the hospital that you work in. It can become a bit life consuming. And I think this is the part where you have to be very, very careful because it can all happen so gradual. And you can be there and you can turn to your colleagues and you can look at your colleagues and be like, oh, they're putting in the same hours and you can look at that as being the normal. 
And you have to be so careful because it's at that particular time that relationships suffer, that friendships suffer, that family suffers, and even your own mental health and your own physical health itself can suffer with that. So you have to be so careful with that and be aware of that and know what's kind of healthy and things as well with it. it certainly kind of highlights that you have to be incredibly efficient with how you kind of manage your day and run your day and to make sure that you're kind of eating as best you can or eating healthy with it, getting your bit of exercise in and minding yourself and also watching out for colleagues and things as well to see in case anyone is suffering a little bit and that you're kind of there for them too. What's your favorite part of the day? I better not say home time, should I? <laughs> well, well, of course, home time. But, but, but just in job. general, um, I, I kind of love the morning part. Like, I think it's just, I, I'm very much a morning person. It's getting going early in the morning and you kind of feel like you've that sort of early start. And this is kind of where you're kind of getting to know your patients that would have kind of come in overnight and you're kind of clicking a plan in place for you. And it's at that point you decide the rest of your day. And I think that's probably my favorite part of the day. What part do you hate? Um... I suppose the paperwork is always frustrating. Is there an awful lot of that? There, there is quite a bit of it. Now, I suppose, look, a lot of it is sort of from, from patient care part as well, but it's kind of like, you know, signing off letters and all of this. Like, it's all an incredibly important part, but yet still, it's it's chatting to the patients. It's having that bit of banter with the patients. It's doing the medical procedures. They're kind of the exciting bits, whereas signing off letters that you'd have dictated or whatever else like that, it's just not as as exciting or whatever else. But still, obviously, a very important role of the job. You love farming, though. I do. You, do. The, the, you send me messages and pictures and videos and you'd be farming. Your mother was out bailing when she was. She was, yeah. She was bullied into that, too. Um, yeah, there's there's no one left idle in our place. If you're looked like that, you're not doing something, yeah. you're, you're put up in a tractor, you're putting, doing whatever else. How do you balance it? See, one job is the perfect break from the other. Like, I think the reality is if I was farming all the time, I probably wouldn't love it as much because you'd probably look at some of the financial sides of it or the isolation sides of it, or, you know, there, there are certain aspects mm. of it that you might find tough at that particular time. Whereas when I combine my medical job with my farming job, I've got the best of both worlds. When I'm in the hospital, I'm meeting loads of people, stimulated all the time, mm. you know, and kind of feel like you're kind of challenging your brain quite a lot inside there. Your phone's going the, t- the whole time, bleep's going the whole time, you're indoors. Whereas then when you're in the farm, throw the phone aside you're out in the open it's just it's it's nearly the complete opposite contrast but like I love one job as much as the other like when I take holidays from one job it's to do the other job I say so. you save a fortune on vet bills <laughs> yeah yeah like it's 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 rare that the vet gets called how many it's times has a sheep or a cow got heart oh, surgery in your oh, bed oh no, no, no <laughs> I wouldn't chance that I wouldn't chance that but even even one of my mates there who's a vet as well uh, the odd occasion he might get a call being like here I was thinking this what do you think Bush yeah <laughs> that's mad what's um if you had to you farm dairy Dairy, yeah. You, we, we've a bit of tillage as well, but it's mainly dairy. Did you always like dairy? I do. I think there's so many different different aspects to dairy. I suppose one minute you're fencing, the next minute you're calving a cow, the next minute you're out cushing silage. And we, we cush all our own silage and things at home. So I kind of love the bit of work with machinery. So there's just so many different parts to it that I think I love. All you the know? farmers are going to be, these are the important questions now the farmers are going to be wondering. What's your favorite tractor? Oh yeah. No, the tractor has to be red. Has so to be red. Has to be red. Massey. So yeah, so we've a massive, we've a case, and we actually have a red New Holland, but all tractors are red. So this Everyone's is all. Everyone's going to be asking, so are you I Church know. of Ireland? <laughs> I'm not. I'm You're not. not Church of Ireland. So know, he's, but I'd he's say not massive. Church of Ireland. So everyone, all the Illuminati lads would be wondering now because they go mad over tractors. Yeah. 
Normally around pe- people say if it's a Massey Ferguson, it's Church of Ireland. Oh, is that it? Yeah. <laughs> or a diet is a Church of Ireland track. Oh, yeah. Seemingly, I don't know. This is what I had to be told. Yeah, yeah. That is what, be, that is what I had to be told. Anyway, when you were kickboxing, yeah. did you ever get injured? Break anything? Uh, no, touch wood. I didn't. No. Did no. you ever injure somebody? Um, I accidentally knocked out someone in something that I was supposed to say knocked out their teeth. No, no, I didn't. And I actually felt really bad. I'm a doctor. It. <laughs> it was supposed to be in sort of a light contact one. And, uh, yeah, unfortunately I ended up knocking out a poor guy and, um, it was very unintentional and I obviously didn't like that particular aspect of it. He was fine afterwards and all, but yeah. You cycled Ireland. Yeah. In one day. The whole end of it. Yeah. Was that the same kind of setup? A lad just rang you and said, hey. <laughs> do you know what I was thinking of doing? I'm a bit bored after going to Atlantic. How about we cycle Ireland? Uh, yeah. So and then someone went, I'll tell you what, let's make it even harder and we'll do it in a day. <laughs> so yeah, this was one of those random ones. I came up with this one by myself. So this was back when I was, um, I was an intern actually at the time. So I just kind of come out of college. And I, th- I think kind of what inspired it is, you're there, you, you study hard for your college exams and you kind of come out and I won't say arrogant, but you kind of feel like, oh, I can manage all these bits. And you kind of have that little bit of confidence to you. And I was called down to meet one particular lady and the particular lady, she was just like, it was a sort of a general complaint. So for argument's sake, we said that she was complaining of chest pain. So I was like, oh, this would be grand and easy one. Go down, chat to her about the chest pain. Started chatting to her about the chest pain and suddenly the conversation kind of diverted from that. And the particular lady, she was suffering from depression and was hiding it very well externally. And certainly you would have never guessed it when you started talking to her initially. But then I saw how dark her life actually was and about how much that she was had on her shoulders. And it's at one point in my life that I felt so utterly useless. I was like, there was nothing I felt like I could do for this woman. And she really stuck with me. I think it was the fact that it was probably one of the first few patients that I met and I felt so useless. And I'm like, oh, what am I going to kind of do with this? And obviously an awful lot of the work we say that Pieta House and things do as well. It was a lot of it was sort of on the limelight and things at the moment. So I was like, I want to kind of create a bit more awareness as to how small Ireland really is. And I want to show that like we're such a small community that we should never be caught for someone to talk to. And I was like, even more of that, that the country is so small that you can actually cycle from one length of it to the other without stopping in 24 hours. So I typed it into Google Maps and uh, I was like, Malinhead to Mizzenhead. Typed it into Google Maps and Google Maps will tell you it'll take a day and seven hours. So like, they, like Google Maps doesn't like take into account that you need to sleep or that you need to pee <laughs> or that you need to do any of these things. So I divided out the average speed and... At the time, I wasn't a road cyclist. I was a mountain biker, but I wasn't a road cyclist. So I kind of went and I searched a bit for bikes. And this was one of the things I kind of messaged a few of the, my friends to see if there was anyone kind of up for it and like kind of got a bit of support and things kind of with it and went looking at bikes and randomly then kind of found myself at the start line and, and started off. And it was in a Halloween night because like for, for anyone... Winter. It was it was in the winter time because I suppose we'd have started our job in July and it was kind of one of the earlier patients that I saw it. And I kind of set myself probably about eight weeks of training to actually do it. So I bought the bike. I was cycling up and down to work, like from home up to work was about 47 kilometers. I'd have a bag on my back that was sort of heavy. And 
you were kind of cycling up. I'd probably leave home, say, at like four o'clock or five o'clock in the morning or whatever else like that to kind of cycle up to work and then cycle back home in the evening. And that was kind of my training predominantly for it. And the other particular side of it then is what I was doing is I was kind of in keeping with the whole darkness to light sort of theme. So I started late in the evening, kind of worked through to be finished within the 24 hours to be kind of out at the other side. And it was sort of one of those ones of like when you were pain in pain and suffering on the bike, that it was one of those things that you kind of looked at it and be like, well, look, there's other people out there that are suffering more than I am. And I'm doing this for them to create awareness and things for them. So you power through it. And it's one of those things of like, it shows the incredible strength of the mind. Like my body was saying stop. And my, my mind was like, no, no, no. Like you're doing this. You're going to make it. And I only made it with like a few seconds left. I think I had 47 seconds left on the overall oh. clock, which just shows that like it completely came down to a mind game and the end of how you were able to push yourself to that point. But an unbelievable experience and obviously created great awareness for it. And even a lot of people kind of reached out to me afterwards um, with their own particular stories and how it kind of changed a little bit for them and things, which is nice. And also kind of raised a nice bit of money for charity as well in doing so as well. When you told me that you did that, I thought it was a joke. I wrote it down. I was going to tell it later. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. that, that's amazing. Uh, thank you. And when you're talking about the mind... I meant to, I always love asking, Doc. I actually got talking to you and Ushin about this yeah. at the Cannonball, because I met you at the Cannonball. How much of people's health is down to negative emotion and their mind, or even getting better after an injury if their frame of mind isn't right? Like, is a lot of it down to the mind? Is the mind that powerful? I think the mind is incredibly powerful. I mean, they talk about this whole placebo effect. Mm. And even that in itself is sort of mind blowing how essentially that you will give someone a medication or a tablet, we say, for argument's sake, if you're complaining of a headache and I have one tablet that's a paracetamol and the other one is just made up of sugar or made up of something that's not actually containing any medication. And if you have enough people in a room and you kind of give it them, so give people nothing or give people this fake tablet, people who get the fake tablet, not knowing that it's a fake tablet will get better with it. So that in itself is saying that the mind has obviously got a lot of power over what we can do with it. But I think it's, I think it's huge. I don't think we fully understand the power of the mind. Some people even have the perception there. If we have a negative thoughts or negative feelings about something, that it'll actually be something that will actually pull us towards that, which is even a little bit well, more scary you are too. what you focus on. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we're, 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 uh, that's why the eyes are on the front of our heads. That way we focus on something and we, we go to it. And if you're focused on negative stuff, of course, you're going to go on negative. I always have to take, make a cognitive effort to not focus on negative things. Yeah. And that seems to have helped me in the last seven or eight years, because you'll just, if you keep focusing on negative stuff, you just turn negative. You do, you do. And even the people you surround yourself mm, with. Absolutely. You know, and like, you can suddenly find that there's people pulling people down and mm. before you realize it, you know, everything, everything in life is horrible. And Did you and have to let go of a lot of friends with the road you took? Um, it your seems like a change. lonely road with, with, with medicine or yeah. with what particular part so I think it's one of those things when you have true friends time, distance all of that never makes a difference and I think this is probably one of those things that if I was to kind of look at my regrets or something that I would like to change a little bit more it's probably the time that I give for friends or for friendship or relationships or whatever else because that's incredibly important. But yet still I have a point of where I have a few friends that I would pick out and I'd be like, they may not hear from me for 12 months, mm. but it's always one of those things that will catch up and it'll be, we might meet up at Christmas for dinner or whatever else. And it's like, it's like there was nothing ever happened in between. 
you know so mm. the friendship is always there and i think it's we both understand that we have busy lives but we also know that if if you needed them that they're 110% there behind your back, you know, so may not be the best person to go for a night out for a few drinks or whatever, mm. but if there was someone in on in trouble or whatever, I know they'd have my back and likewise, they know I'd have their back. Are you close to your brothers and sisters? I'm incredibly close to them. Um, if, like from a distance point of view, one of my sisters in Canada and the other one is in the UK, but all the rest she of us are in here in Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> But money over there the I know, I know. I'll convert her and tell her to go over there. But we're all incredibly close. We all have very different characters, but yet still we're we're all incredibly close, which which is really nice. And uh, you know, I think I think that's the brilliant thing about family, even though you can have different kind of characters and things. And here, don't get me wrong, we certainly learned to to fight from a young age too. That's what big families do best. It is, yeah. There's plenty shouting and roaring and things yeah. like that, but no, we're very close. Yeah. Um, are you religious? I am religious. Um, I think this is one of those points. I think it actually would nearly even scare me more if I didn't have a faith. Um, okay, I may not be the best person to go to Mass every Sunday mm. or whatever else like that, but I do have a faith and I do feel that there is sort of a, an afterlife after here and things as well. And it's one of those things. For me personally, I think it would even terrify me more if I knew that I didn't have that outside there. Now, I fully respect anyone else's beliefs who, mm. who don't have that faith and things, but for me personally, I do. Um, can you remember when, did you ever have not care and then when did you start having a little bit more faith? Can you remember a moment? <sighs> a specific moment, possibly not. I think from a generic point of view, I think of when things are bad, that's when I would probably turn to faith a little bit more and probably pray a little bit more or, you I know, think people secretly do that without um, admitting yeah. it. You know, when things are bad, every human, it doesn't matter where you are in the world. Like yeah. it doesn't matter what, you just look up and you go, please, God, or whatever you call it. Yeah. Everyone looks up. I find that really amazing that humans do that. We always look to something bigger than ourselves. We do, we do. And and it's funny because you mentioned about that. Like, uh, as I mentioned there, I wasn't the best. So like when I was in school, I'd do my homework and all that. I remember we used to say, uh, like, you know, we'd, we'd do our morning prayers or whatever. And like, this is back even in primary school. And like, I used to pray that like, I wouldn't get in trouble for not having my homework done. <laughs> yeah. It never worked. I hope no one asks. It never it. worked. I know. So maybe, maybe I should kind of question my faith after all of that. But uh, yeah, I could have been smarter and actually done my homework instead. But I don't know. What was your first... What's your first vivid childhood memory? Yeah, it, it's funny. I, there's one of those ones. So my grandmother from my, my mother's side, my mum's mum, she was from a farming background as well. And she's a house up near kind of Blarney and on a farm up there. And we used to stay with her as part of our holidays. It was our summer holidays when we were young kids. And uh, there was this gentleman that was above there. He was working. He was like painting gates and things like that. But he would have been a very close family friend. But his name was Davy. So great name. It is a great name, yeah. But I was out in the yard and like I'd say it was probably only about four years of age or even younger at this stage. I must have been younger. But he was smoking the pipe and I ran into the house to Nana and like in terrified being like, Nana, Nana, Davy's on fire. <laughs> <laughs> See the smoke coming out. 
and, and it's like I can picture literally the exact spot that he was in the yard outside there but it's just that innocence of being a kid yeah, yeah. and like how I was terrified you know that the poor man was going up and smoking up in flames or whatever else and it's one of those things that memories that like every so often we kind of laugh about them we kind of reminisce over stories but it's one of those ones that's they're ingrained into my brain from into a very very young reason. age every time you smell someone smoking a pipe yeah, or something yeah, yeah. I was only walking down the street the other day me and Greg and Garrett we were going for food and there was an old guy sitting in a 135 Massey in Mount oh, Trad, Savage, yeah. goes in to get the, the food every day and he was smoking a pipe and you just go oh, it just reminds you of when you were younger and you know my dad used to smoke a pipe and friends of his used to smoke a pipe and the smell of the pipe and smell of old people yeah. in pubs and stuff because now all you smell is farts <laughs> in pubs like pubs don't smell nice anymore but they used to smell like um, you know fags and tobacco and stuff Missed that, and, and it's funny how you never forget that smell. No, the never. smell is like it has an association. Like it'll just click yeah, you yeah. back and bring you straight back to it. Nothing memory. brings you back in time when you like smell, does it? Yeah, yeah, it's funny. Isn't that? Um, if you could make one phone call to heaven, who would you call? Um, oh yeah, I wouldn't even have to question about this. I think it would be dad. Yeah, not. I think it would be. It definitely would be. I'd say know. he'd be very proud of you. I don't know about that, <laughs> but I think it's. I think I have a lot of sort of similarities to what he'd have been like. We'd have both been crazy into cars, into farming. You know, we'd have loved the mechanical side, doing welding, all of that kind of crack. So we had a lot of sort of similar interests. Mm. And yeah, that would have been who my call would be to. Not specifically sure what I would say, but still obviously to hear his voice again and have just a general chat. Yeah. Would you talk about him often now at home? Uh, we would. I think this is sort of one of those things, especially kind of at Christmas time. We'd often kind of bring out stories of things that we hid from our parents, like from even like even down to last that word, Christmas. Don't there. tell anyone about that, but now they're fun. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Like I, I couldn't tell them I crashed the car. <laughs> at Christmas time there, the last Christmas we were actually chatting about there. So dad had a Celica, one of these Toyota Celicas with oh, the flick up cool, lights. So. And his nickname was Blue Flash. So <laughs> it was a blue Celica. So you can you can imagine why he ended up picking up that nickname Bush. Um, when my parents were away, uh, my sister and I used to take the car. But uh, I was always told, but I had to get my pillow and fold my pillow over too to sit in the pillow so I could see you over the steering wheel. This will tell you how young I was when I was taking the car. And you were driving around. And racing around the yard <laughs> doing handbrake turns and things. But then like we ended up having to wash the car and like scatter all the dust and things that that's Jesus what they never, and they never found out. <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of like, it's innocent stuff like that that you kind of look back at it and you kind of laugh, be like, it's you know, funny, what we got up to. It, when, because we're a certain generation, taking the car, doing a few handbrake turns in the yard is innocent. Yeah. But if you yeah. were to hear of an eight-year-old now taking a car and doing handbrake turns, you'd think, fucking cunt needs to be took <laughs> into a home. Like, it's gassing. It's so true. It's so true, so yeah. Uh, would you rather be hated for being yourself or love for being someone else? Oh, hated for being myself. Yeah, it's way yeah. better, isn't it? I, I think it is. Look, I mean, I obviously have a character that not everyone likes and obviously people probably don't like my beliefs or my thinking or whatever else. And I fully respect that and I, I appreciate their opinion and things with it. But yet still, if I'm not who I am, then I, I'm absolutely not. I think you're things. beautiful, man. <laughs> I think you're beautiful, man. Uh, is home for you a place or a feeling? It's definitely both. I think it's when I go home, there's so many associations with it. It's the freedom. It's the memories. Um, without having family there, it's absolutely nothing. So it's the past memories there. It's a combination of everything. Will you always live home? Will you build your house there or would you travel? That may not be an option to build my house there, but yet still, I'd always love for it to be part of the family and for somewhere that I could always go back to and still call home. What's your favorite country other than Ireland? 
Oh, well, I'm like the closest place to Ireland. Like it would have to be the UK, <laughs> just from the fact of like it's closer to Ireland. Uh, I, I haven't really traveled that much. Um, like I, I went to Scotland on a mountain bike trip, and I love it over there, and I love Wales. So I think Scotland and Wales are probably be my two favorite I didn't. I didn't know. I How did you miss that? Them. I know. Did you go in the winter? It was the winter, actually. Yeah. So that could have been why. But I, I don't know. Scotland probably more the reason once, why. And yeah. I never ever seen that like it. it was like a cloud outside the window. Are you serious? And it was the first day I was there, and I was like, "What the fuck is that out there?" And I got out a few minutes there to fill with diesel. And I was attacked. They were so aggressive. A couple of them had nunchucks, eye patches. <laughs> <laughs> they, were, it, they were so aggressive. Never seen that night. That's mad. Oh, crazy. Yeah. Don't go anywhere if uh, weather's midgets. <laughs> uh, who brings you the most happiness in your life? I don't think I could specifically pick out one person. Like, it would obviously be family. I was hoping it'd be me. You know, well, oh yeah, sorry. We'll, we'll, we'll rewind back we'll, a bit we'll, we'll, David, look, we'll, we'll, we'll take it for granted it's me. <laughs> and we'll go you, you and your podcast, Dave. <laughs> me and like, my podcast. No, nothing else. Uh, do you trust anyone with your life? And if so, who? Oh, uh, this is going to make me sound like such a mum's boy now, isn't it? If I say my mum. I'd say my mum. I'll have to say something kind of cooler than that. I think, I think kind of probably the reasons why I would pick her over anyone else is because she knows me longest, you know? Um, but like, I would pick any family member to, and I'd trust them with my life, any one of them, because we we just have that sort of unbelievable kind of trust that there's there with it. I think always with family, it's it's very hard to build up with someone else, something that's not family, mm. you know, I think. And time is probably the biggest part with it, I suppose. Look, they've seen you too thick and too thin. They've seen you in your good times, your bad times. Um, like they're with you since you were a baby. So they know your character. And yeah, so that would be it. What would you like to be known for most when you die? I think that someone would say that I cared you know, not about myself, but just kind of cared about other people. And I think that would probably be the, the most important part. Um, every so often, I feel like I can look at like a fancy, nice car, or look at a nice watch or whatever, and kind of be like, oh, yeah, look, that's what I want. I want to have the real flashy car or have the real nice Rolex watch or the cliche part. But then every so often you're like, it's meaningless. It's not worth anything. And even when you look at the people with these, they're still looking for more as well. But when you're actually there and you have time for other people and you're there to support them through their tough times, I think that's what I would like to be known for more so than anything else. Do you ever get scared of dying? I'm terrified of it. I didn't even have to think about it. I think it's because I look at life and I'm like, there is so much more that I have to live that that bit terrifies me. And I feel like I'm kind of... I suppose that's probably something that comes with the job and things too, that you come across people who are younger than you who pass away or don't make it into hospital and you're looking at how much of their life has been taken from them. And I think it's it's the, the one part that I'm kind of always so conscious of. And it's not that I'm looking at it as a negative, I'm looking at it more of a positive because it's making me, you enjoy know. Enjoy your life. It's making here. me enjoy my life. It's making me be happy with the simplest things in life, like literally walking by a stream or seeing little ducklings in in the water. Like these are things that I've just kind of recently seen that I've looked at and I've just like, oh my God, you Wait, know what I really like that. Wait till you make your own people. 
really blow your mind <laughs> yeah i know i know it's like and the and these are, are are amazing little steps in life and you know unfortunately not everyone gets to live them and it's just yeah that's that's the horrible reality of life really isn't it are you doing the cannonball this year i i'd love to do the cannonball this year but i don't think i have a car sorted for it ah. I, I was looking ah. i know I, I was looking into to buying a car for it now obviously my funds are are not the 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 fullest but i i would absolutely love to do it i mean even down to the friendship that i've developed with you david um over the last just shy of Stop a year but but it's mad like you meet such amazing people along the way you there do. and it's just you're pulling people with a common interest and love for cars you but put everyone's so different circle, but yet still everyone's from so different from such different backgrounds everyone is so humble and just such great crack and even the people the spectators and things that you you meet along the way that was your first time to do it wasn't it that was my first time to do it so if I'm not taking part in it actually with a car I'll certainly be there out supporting I thought you'd be there now I'm raging uh, well we fingers crossed Fingers crossed. Dude. I might be cycling behind you. Jesus. <laughs> well, no better man to do it. What are you looking forward to doing most? Have you anything set that's mad like those things I was just saying? Have you anything that's tickling your little brain and go, oh, maybe I'll climb Mount Everest or maybe I'll go down into the Mariana Trench or something like what? What's next? I've um, recently taken up kite surfing. And of course you have. I know. This is this one of my buddies as well. Um, I, I, thought, I actually thought, right, that you were going to say you had a uh, flying wingsuit bar. That's what I was expecting. Oh, see, that's what I was thinking, but I didn't want to say it. I was thinking you'd judge me if I said that. So I was like, oh, I'll tone it down a bit and say kite surfing. Um, I love the air. I love heights. Oh my God, like I said, I'm a dangerous person to have in any building because I'm always looking to get onto the roof fish or find the highest place to get a view. And uh, with kite surfing, it just seems the cheapest way to fly. So I think it's a no-brainer. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so I've recently taken that up and I kind of want to kind of get a bit better at it. So uh, any bit of an opportunity that I have that I'm off, wind is in the right direction. Um, I always have it in the car and camp out at the side of the beach or sleep in the car or whatever to get out, do your bit of kite surfing. And I, Did I you win your car? I did win my car. <laughs> yeah. How, how would you win a car? Like, uh, it's a nice Jeep. It, it's a lovely Jeep. Yeah. A discovery. So, uh, this is something that I won when I was back in med school. So you can imagine it arriving in that. That's when everyone was like, oh, daddy's money arriving yeah, in yeah. your fancy Land Rover. But there was um, a farming competition called Farm Factor. It was um, uh, one based on kind of your farming abilities. It was on TG Car. And uh, it was an element of luck going my way, but I managed to win it back in 2012. And so you were on that program? I was on that program, yeah. How the fuck did I not know that? <laughs> I am going to start delving into that YouTube clips tonight. Oh, now. I'm going to try and find them. We're literally the cupola of fuck That was nearly the only Irish word that I Can had. Can you speak Irish? Uh, no, no, unfortunately Would you like not. to do Hell Week? Uh, to do Hell Week? I've, I've seen little clippets of it and it actually looks class. I'm not sure if I'd be tough enough for it, but it just looks unreal. Of course you would. Yeah. You'd be tough enough now. You're tough as fucking nail. <laughs> I wish, I wish. And um, say you were going doing the cannonball. Let's say you have loads of money. Yeah. Right? What car oh, would you have? I'd, I'd love a Porsche GD3 RS. Of course you would. Uh, yeah. God it's, damn it. They're it's so just, sexy, aren't they? They're a gorgeous car. It's just like, you see the big T-bar spoiler in mm. the back of them. There's something kind of classy about them as well. There is. And, and they, seem, just, they seem drivable. They do. It seems they like do. something you can bring to mass. You know, you can go collect the kids yeah. and then you can rip up the street with them. Yeah. Oh, there's such, there's such a lovely car. And even like I've sat into a few of them and it's, I think wherever going holidays, it's like, right, where's the local Porsche dealer? Where's the local yeah, Lamborghini dealer? And go look. I do that. 
But, that's uh, what you do when you get a bit older. When I was younger, I used to sit on the toilet having a poop, looking at done deal at all the cars I can't afford. Yeah. That's what I used to do. Then I got piled, stopped doing that. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, they're, they're just such a nice car, you know, but it's, um, it's a poster on the wall. So yeah, someday is, soon. Is Oshin doing it this year? I, I don't know, actually. God, I was actually only on to Oshin. I'm only meeting up with him actually this Friday. So we're catching up with him back in Cork. And uh, I might try and twist his arm to see if he'd be up for it again. I, I believe he's not, but we'll see. We'll see. He's we'll probably in love again. again. I know. Uh, yeah. Love, it's always the kind of put her down, isn't it? Yeah. Gosh, <laughs> but I have to say, thanks a million for coming on. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. If, before you go, if you had to give young people, not even young people, anyone, any advice now that's struggling, yeah. what would you say to them? I think it's just one of those things of like, you have to follow your heart. You know, you can't be pressured into doing anything. And it's just, you know, I think after the darkness literally comes the light, you know, you just kind of plow through any tough time or hard time that you have and you'll be rewarded out the other side. And for anyone who kind of feels that they don't have kind of a sense of direction, like Time will click you into a certain place. As I mentioned, 16 years of age, I had no idea where I was going and I had a perception of where I was going and nearly terrified because all your friends knew where they were going. And yet still, you know, I kind of clicked into my own place. So not to, to worry and just kind of plow through the tough times and the good times. And there is no avoiding the struggle. There isn't. No, everyone is hit with it. And I think, look, this is the bit, there's all this talk about social media and things about how much people can kind of hide behind it, all the smiles, the filters and all this kind mm. of crack. And I think it's only when you kind of properly get chatting to people that you know what's going on behind everyone's mm. lives. So the people with the biggest smile can actually be the people who are suffering the most. So I think anytime that someone is going through their tough time to appreciate all those around them are probably going through the same time or tough stage as well. Mm. And just to never be a stranger, never be kind of caught for someone to chat to, you know? Brilliant. Absolutely. Pa, legend. Thank you so much for, for coming on. Absolute I'll, pleasure. I'll surely get you on again. And just... Uh, I'm not one to be given a doctor advice, but for a guy that loves life and is afraid of dying, please stop doing so many extreme sports. <laughs> <laughs> that's all I'm saying. Just chill out a little longer. Just uh, chill yeah. out. No, that's cool. David, right. an absolute Thanks, man. Thanks, man. Everyone, I'll see you next week and good luck.